If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. Hmm. Uh, what do you do? That's the great question. <laughs> what is the long-term effect of too much information? Back at it again, one jar cynics. Dio here. And Gene, um, last episode was kind of a disaster, to be honest. <laughs> I think our studio, the la- studio is haunted. <laughs> our studio is haunted because what what happened? The the energy turned on and it was super loud. And then the microphone, micro, my microphone fell on top of me and almost like my laptop died. Oh, your laptop died too. That sucked. And then um, <laughs> your microphone stand collapsed. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Mid podcast. <laughs> What what is the what is the solution to this? We got to get a a Joe Rogan stage. We got to get a uh a studio, real studio. Anyway, last I think we made it clear. So last episode we talked about the dog-like uh tenets of the philosophy and how he dodged and he's pretty much uh essentially uh, practiced what he preached and he applied these kind of um Different tenets of the philosophy, the dog-like tenet, which is indifference, shamelessness, um, distinguishing your friend and foe, and guarding your philosophy, and which is, but the last one is uh, kind of the freedom of speech aspect of of it, uh, the barking aspect. So he did that with um, Alexander the Great. Next episode, uh, which is this one, actually, we're going to talk about um, his followers, because, you know, uh, actually, we, we were talking about this in the last episode that, yeah, I mean, it seemed that he kind of took people's time. It almost seemed that Diogenes was taking up people's times with the shenanigans he pulled, at least the shenanigans that people tend to talk about. Like he used to hold mirrors up to people and show the Athenians like they were hypocrites. Apparently that was something, I think that's probably not true, but it's probably for the story, for like the allegorical um aspects of it he used to go on uh, take these mirrors and go to the the athenians and show them oh look this is what you look at yourself look at who you are right he used to do that he also used to go around with like a uh a lamp and a lantern and he used to say i'm looking for an honest man so it's like he had all these shenanigans what was the other one i think it was in the last script was like Looking at the bones, and he's like... Oh, the bones. I remember this. Yeah, yeah. So I said he uh, he had this... It was another um, supposed um, interaction he had with Alexander the Great, where he said that um, I'm looking through a pile... Uh, he was looking through a pile of bones, uh, Diogenes, and Alexander was present. He was saying, I can't seem to find the bones of your father. I can't distinguish them between those of a slave and... And your and your father, something like that. I, I paraphrase it totally wrong, but essentially, yeah, he was going through the bones and said, I, I, "These bones, there's no difference from." The, yep, there's no difference between them and your dad. Yeah, that one's probably fake. Yeah, exactly. I think if he said that, he probably would have gotten mad because I don't. Like, <laughs> I think, yeah, that's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one th- one thing to say, "Okay, get out of my get out of my face," right? Like, stop taking up my son, right? Get out of here. But then to say that, I, I, there's a quote specifically from Alexander the Great, actually, where he says, I, 
I am blessed for the for my father, but even more blessed because of the teachings of my uh, because of the wisdom of my teacher. Something along those lines. I know I'm paraphrasing the hell out of it. That's not what he actually said, but he's pretty much saying that he he gives feel you know he's respecting his dad, but he's also respecting something really important to him, which was knowledge, right? Which was uh, Aristotle. So was it normal back then? To have like a just like a single teacher. Oh yeah, it was the it was the rage back then for the Greeks and the Romans to have a a, so, a sophist, which is a usually they specialize in um, logic and grammar and um, sometimes philosophy or other natural science, kind of liberal arts to get people um, ready. And they yeah, the, it's a private tutor. Usually the high class had them. So Marcus Aurelius had one, and his specific. Um, his tutor was um, a big fan of Stoicism, so that's what got him into Stoicism. Was his um, his the Sophist, his private tutor, and then Aristotle. Obviously, yeah, he had a big impact on Alexander. Funny enough, though, a lot of historians say that whatever aspect, whatever, because you know, Diogenes had this. Um, uh, you know, he he. This cosmopolitanism, you would have thought that that had an effect on Di- on Alexander the Great's conquest, and that maybe he was inspired by it. But apparently, he was very stubborn. He didn't. He respected knowledge, but he at the end of the day, he did what he wanted. So there's no evidence correlating that this idea of cosmopolitanism by Diogenes or any of Aristotle's teaching kind of decided on what was the brotherhood or what was, um, what his empire should be like. And the end of the, at the end of the day, he was probably inspired by them, but he didn't really um, uh, um, apply their teachings so directly. You know what I mean? So he was yeah. he did what he wanted at the end. I mean, he's a he's he's a he's a boss, so he's not gonna do what other people tell him to do. But um, today's yeah yeah. So pretty much, we're gonna talk about Diogenes' pupils, and he had a bunch of pupils actually. I think he had, I think, um, at least seven. He had seven disciples. So, I want to talk about two of them. So, one of them is Onesicritus. I don't know how to pronounce his name too well. Um, and then you have um, uh, Crates of Thebes. So, Crates of Thebes is really important because he's obviously the teacher of Zeno. And Zeno is the founder of Stoicism. You know, Stoicism is the most, I think it is the most important or at least the major Hellenistic school, meaning like Alexander the Great, you know, he had the, he Hellenized the world and all these philosophical teachings and Greek culture were exposed to other co- uh, other countries and cultures. So it's the major school of the of the Hellenistic era. Did they live on the street with him? Well, yeah, yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Crates of Thieves specifically did. Uh, uh, Zeno, he did, but I don't know for how long. Because I, I know that eventually Stoic, the Stoics, uh, Zeno, he liked cynicism, but he kind of moved away a little bit and branched out. Because, you know, uh, but we can talk about that later. Mo- this is mostly a, I don't, do, don't want to call it a deep dive, but it's kind of like an introductory, not course, but I mean... It's just um, it's just exposure to something that otherwise most people never really talk about in 
and um, cynicism, specifically for Anisocritus. I always found him interesting, right? Because there's different aspects of cynicism, right? You may okay, you may not necessarily believe in cynicism and all the minimalism and then the freedom for possessions and wealth and power. Maybe you might like that. Maybe you're more Machiavellian, right? Maybe you have goals, you do want to build a lot of wealth and you want to have status. Whatever. At the end of the day, <clears throat> that's your thing. I'm not gonna judge anyone for that, right? Everybody has a different value system. But um I bring this up just because there are some aspects of cynicism I think that are definitely applicable to someone the to one's life and is very interesting and helpful. So uh, that's why it's kind of a movement. It is kind of a philosophy. It's kind of a it's kind of a you can't really pigeonhole cynicism because yes, it's kind of an attitude. So you can be cynical. It can be a movement, different people um live live out the their philosophy subconsciously without knowing the, the what they're what they're actually doing it's the cynicism cynic lifestyle and then there is also other attributes that you know you can kind of cherry pick out uh, off because some cynics you know that's why crates of thebes is very different than diogenes crates of thebes is and, and i'll get into him later but i want to just kind of throw that out there that he's very different than diogenes so he he does live very similarly to Diogenes, and he does believe in kind of the tenets of the dog and acting kind of dog-like, but in a different way. He interprets the teachings and applies it in a different way to reach the same result, which is interesting. And people really like Crates of Thebes. I mean, he has a very, very important... Um, um, I would say... Yeah, he has a very significant impact on hist- on on history compared to Diogenes. But in, um, let's start with the Onesicritus because not many people talk about him. But I always thought he was interesting because he kind of um, he kind of is the manifestation of, I guess, the wanderer aspect of cynicism, right? Because there is that aspect, right? Because they usually wander around. They use the, with their cloaks and their staff and their backpack. Like a traveler, right? Like a, a drifter, right? The cosmopolitan. He doesn't really belong anywhere. And yeah, Onesicritus. Um let me just remember my place because there's a lot to there's a lot of different aspects you can kind of uh tackle Onesicritus. There there's the aspect of we could kind of go into a deep dive. I don't want to do a biography on him, but I want to just talk about the him as his role in the kind of the movement and philosophy in general, not really who he is, but what he did as a person. But um, Onesicritus was pretty much somebody who he went on an expedition with Alexander the Great, and he was inspired by Diogenes to go on this ex- expedition with Alexander the Great. Right, um, he was the the pilot of the king ship and chief navigating officer under the I don't even know how to pronounce that the this it's Nearchus, the Nearchus. How would you pronounce that Nearchus, Nearchus? And the famous voyage to the Persian Gulf. No idea on that one. Right, <laughs> when he returned to Greece, he had written about Alexander. That was similarly modeled after a book called the Cryopedia 
based on the first king of, of Persia, right? It's a book written by uh, Xenophon. And everybody knows Xenophon's student of Socrates, associate of Antisthenes. He wrote memorabilia and he wrote um, The Trial of Socrates. And by the way, this book by Xenophon was influential to Machiavelli's The Prince. And this book was popular enough to have been read by Aulus, Aulus Gellius, Roman who wrote about Attic Nights and Brundisium. You know, that's a, Attic Nights is a very, it's kind of like, I don't know how to describe this kind of genre of books. Because it's like a compilation of, it's almost like an, uh, an encyclopedia almost. So he talks about philosophy, he talks about ancient history, he talks about many things. So it's like, you can't really put a genre. And it seemed that, yeah, th- this book that uh, that they wrote, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, no, um, Onesicritus, was kind of like idealistic, because he, he talks about how all these adven- wacky advantage- adventures he had all over the... I mean, to them, it was not the it was the unknown world, right? For us, obviously, we know what it where it is. He went; they went through Persia, they went through different Middle Eastern countries, they went to India, right? So it's, for us, it's not that exotic, but for them, it was right. All the animals they saw, so it's kind of like a, a romantic kind of journey book. That's what he did, and he also they romanticized also about being under Alexander the Great. I haven't read the book myself, so I can't say whether or not what he if he talks about Alexander the Great in, in this certain light, but it seems that at least from these historians from the past, uh, Strabo, the Greek historian, it seems like it's kind of like uh, rom- romantic, like, you know, romanticized, that maybe more exaggerated, hyperbolic, uh, sentimental. So, and, and in this book, by the way, Anusicratus, he he goes to. It's, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but it's kind of important why uh, he's kind of the, the epitome of a traveler and a journeyer and an adventurer. And when he goes to India, you know he's definitely inspired by the cynics, right? That because he talks about these fak- the fakirs. I think that's how you say it, right? It's kind of the, these followers of this aesthetic lifestyle. Similar to the cynics, so they they refrain from pleasure and too much food and indulgence, and they're kind of monkish, right? So uh, I'm gonna read this passage from from him, but you can definitely tell he's um, uh, Onesicritus is inspired by these fakirs, and he's or he's not really inspired, but he's kind of like. Attributing the features of the cynics and kind of like relating them to these people from this different land, you get what I mean, Dio? He's kind of like, I'd have to sh- uh, let me just pull up this passage real quick. Oh no, yeah, this place is cursed because now I can't access my laptop for some reason. Yeah, this what's wrong with this studio, dude? Now I can't access my laptop. What? <clears throat> I wanted to. Why isn't it letting you click on the? Oh, that's annoying. I wanted to click on it so I can kind of read this passage by, uh, but whatever. I'll just paraphrase it. But essentially, what he's what he's talking, about, what how he describes the fakirs is like a cynic. They live very simply. They live on a, a simple diet of fruit, and they live very long because of it. They also exercise very stringently, 
they are very simplistic and they uh, despite there being gold mines and silver mines they're they don't really dress themselves up in jewelry and all that so uh, they're very simple despite all the richness of the country kind of like the cynics in greece right like despite the greek society being really affluent and they put up big status uh, a big emphasis on status and wealth and all these things right they are very modest and it's kind of inspiring for him and another thing is they also grew uh, that's man i wish i had that that, de- that i could actually access it cuz i, I want to read how he would say it let me see. Maybe it's the battery of, of my it's your mouse. It's my mouse. Okay, now it's working. Yeah, off. Okay, now I'm gonna pull it up. Actually, I was trying to paraphrase it from my head, but I couldn't um do it because it's written in a certain way. Where is it? What do you What do you think of this guy so far, though? And it's a critic. Do you think he? It's inter- what's interesting to me, by the way, I, I forgot to kind of mention this, but what's interesting about Onesicritus is that um, he is, ten- I mean, he's sort of following the teachings of Diogenes, but he's not, because I, I always find it interesting that he's still technically, I mean, he is a pilot, he does have a profession, he is getting paid, right? He is going on this, he has a job technically, so he is sort of n- autonomous, not autonomous in a way. He is going under the, uh, he's under the command of Alexander the Great. So I always found that interesting, actually. What do you think about that? Do you think he's kind of cherry picking or do you think he's? I don't think there's any, uh, anything wrong with that. Yeah, right. I don't see anything wrong. That's why I think it's kind of inspiring that. Interesting how he's inspired by that. How it's not a bad thing. There's a lot, there's something to, to be gained from that, right? Seeing him and wanting to maybe be a wanderer and maybe explore that that's one thing about cynicism and dr dudley professor dr dudley right of cambridge who write who wrote the, the the influential book the history of cynicism from diogenes in 1937 i know i, I keep repeating that right but it's an important book because in this book he he talks about this uh, onesicritus as being this is kind of the evidence of it being a um a movement rather than just a um, a philosophy, right? So maybe you don't want to necessarily follow that aspect of it because there's different aspects of cynicism, right? There's the aspect where you can kind of follow these that life lifestyle in that way, or you can f- follow the lifestyle by traveling because that's still part of, of the cynic's routine, which is to travel and wander and not be from anywhere right that's the kind of the cosmopolitanism like um like uh who, who would it be like what do you mean who would it be like like um uh why can't i remember the word uh why can't i remember it i can't help you son they go and stay at hostels and Oh, um, like a backpacker? Like backpackers, yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like a backpacker, but I guess in the old in the old sense. 
he he is pretty much a, but he's yeah he was a historian and he did it he did it more for the a pleasure it seems for the adventure I, i'd have to look more into it but at least did he have a backpack i'm assuming he had a backpack if you're gonna go on an excur- excursion that far away you would have the supplies that's a lie they didn't have backpacks back then oh yeah no you, they, you know what they used to call them i think satchels just like a, a uh, like a man bag and if you look at the crates of thieves and there's a painting of him he has a it looks like a satchel almost like a man purse but apparently Diogenes did have a, a, a no no it was a knapsack so it's like a kind of like a yeah it's a knapsack so it's like a like a stick with a, yeah a, 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 a handkerchief exactly <laughs> yeah exactly like that no really that's how they depict him have you ever seen pictures of Diogenes like medieval drawings that's how they picture him as. He has a cape and he has a long beard, and he yeah, has a cape. A, well, a cloak. Oh, I thought he was like trying to be trying to be a superhero. <laughs> but it's funny. Well, they they see themselves as Hercules. You know that, right? A, metaphys- a, meta- a metaphysical, uh, allegorical Hercules. You know, f- overcoming hardships, overcoming um, uh, carnal desires, stuff like that. Right? That's how they see themselves. Right? And the cloak is the lion cloak, and the staff is that. I don't know if he. I don't know if he actually. Um, it's a lot of symbolism. Yeah, a lot of symbolism and and cynicism, which is really nice. So it's kind of that's why I like cynicism because it's like, how do I say it? It's very simplistic, but at the same time, it's very simple, right? Living in accordance with nature. Essentially, that's what it is. And living in accordance with nature is being uh, re- using reasoning, using logic, and living uh minimally having mental clarity all that stuff right living peacefully and free and freely from desires desires and um also possessions but yeah there's a lot of symbolism um i don't know if onesie critics used to wear this stuff but anyway I, i was able to pull it up so this is what he said when he went to india right and i think yeah i'll just Paraphrase it. Uh, of the country of Mosicanus, he writes at some length, praising it, saying that its inhabitants are known for their longevity. They attain an age of 130 years. Okay, <laughs> that's... Take it with a grain of salt, cynics. Um, and for their simple and healthful, healthful lifestyle, despite the fact that their country offers an abundance of everyday commodities... They have public organizations for meals, as do the Spartans. They use neither gold nor silver, although mines exist in their country. Instead of slaves, they use the young men in their prime, as do the Cretans with the Aphimiote and the Spartans with the Helots. They cultivate no science except that of medicine. Indeed, some Indian tribes consider highly wicked. Oh, wait, wait. Sorry, I read that wrong. Indians, (laughs) tribes consider highly developed skill in the art of war and kindred subjects as positively wicked. So it's like they're they're capable of war, but they're not very warmongering. So they use it kind of like a defensive military. So maybe that's why they... Because, you know, Alexander the Great, he has an offensive military, right? He wants to conquer. So maybe he saw that as kind of more moral, more ethical, more interesting. Maybe that's what he was thinking, right? 
because they put an emphasis on ethics. It's a philosophy. Cynicism is a philosophy of ethics. There's no theory. It's only practice. It's only that's right. So that's maybe what he was thinking. Uh, that's my interpretation. They have no laws except for the punishment of murder and insolence. What's their definition of insolence? That's the interesting part of it, the insolence part. You, you're not eating enough figs? Insolence! <laughs> Can call, yeah. <laughs> you're not eating enough lentils? You just... When people throw out that word, it's like oh. When you when you um like a threat. Yeah right. When you um don't eat your lentils, you leave it. You're wasting food. Insolence. Insolence. Uh, Dr. Dudley, by the way, he said he in his opinion he says and and Socrates is not an important figure in the development of cynicism. And you're probably wondering, right, Dr. Because I know you're you're uh you like to test the the strength of theories, right? You're probably wondering what does it mean to develop cynicism, right? If it's so simple. Maybe. <laughs> Are you? I wasn't. <laughs> oh, you weren't? <laughs> Never mind. I was expecting you to, to say something like, oh what a, yeah, what do you how do you develop cynicism, huh? If it's, it's so simple, huh? You can't develop it. I was waiting for you to say that. Oh no. <laughs> that's that's boring. All right. Well, he was a wanderer over the face of the earth, and in discovering Diogenes' doctrines on the banks of the Indus, he shows how in the minds of its admirers, cynicism is already not a school of philosophy, but a way of life. I'm quoting the, the author. That's his interpretation, right? So that's pretty much it on Anesicritus, because I haven't read the book on Alexander, but I think that's interesting. That's interesting how he kind of represents that different aspect of cynicism. Like I said, he's a traveler. Because, you know, in cynicism, this it seems to be this way. There's different way to, not to interpret it, really, but kind of act upon the knowledge you have, right? Just like Socrates, right? You have Antisthenes, right? He he doesn't believe in wealth, and he doesn't really believe, he doesn't really, he's okay with being poor, that's what I mean. It's kind of a virtue, right? Because he believes in internal goods and external uh, more an internal good rather than external right that's his interpretation the way he lives his life right and then plato is different he takes more the aspect of socrates teaching that's more in line with logic right and rigorous studying right because socrates has that aspect of him he's a very multifaceted man he has that he does talk about ethics but he talks about questioning things he talks about also, you know what I mean? So it's like they branch out in a way. And then Socrates also talks about, um, he talks about um, the gadfly, right? Um, social norms, right? That you should have freedom of speech and be direct and be frank and, and question everything, even if you think it's something that's set in stone, right? That's what he would do. He would go around and he would converse with everybody and test their... He was pretty much a devil's advocate. He would go around and test test their um, knowledge on something to see if they, if they actually knew what they were talking about or they think they knew what they were talking about, right? That's what I feel, in my opinion, that's like Plato, he kind of absorbs that aspect of his teachings. And then Diogenes, he kind of absorbs the defacing the currency aspect of Socrates' teaching, right? So... 
um, attacking norms, attacking the establishment, um, questioning it, stuff like that, right? So there's like, it's just like cynicism, right? So there is the route where you could be the wanderer because that's an aspect of, be, of being the cynic, right? Back then, the being a wanderer, a cosmopolitan, not having a home, and then kind of searching that for yourself. Like, what do you feel like is your home? I know some people probably, probably like, ah, right? Like, why would I want to do that, right? So if you don't, you're not really into that, right? You're not like an Anunnaki and you go to India and you go super far, right? But you you can be inspired by the the other part, the other aspect, which is the um, satire, because there's some pe- which is kind of Crates of Thebes is known for. He wrote a book on on, on kind of comedy and parody and satire. So it's just how you interpret it, right? You get what I mean? I would I don't know I don't want to call it cherry picking. I want to just call it. Because, I mean, every cynic is different. At the end of the day, the most cynics would agree there is kind of a universal... kind of like personalizing. Yeah, right? It's like, how do we say? Your own spin on an old trick or a philosophy, right? You might want to... I mean, you can still believe in all the other stuff because the cynics, they still believe in all, all the other things, right, about their philosophy, these cynics that I'm talking about. But I guess they some put an emphasis on one aspect of it, right? And that's why um, I, I bring up on Isocritus because the pu- everybody thinks that every cynic is the same. They're all homeless and they're all this and that, even though they come in different colors. And I'm not even joking about colors, by the way, because there's actually different ethnicities that practice cynicism, right? There was there were some in, in uh, Jerusalem. There were uh, Zeno. He was considered, he was um, a dark-skinned Phoenician. And they actually, they emphasize that. They say he's a dark-skinned guy, and he's from uh, Phoenicia, right? Uh, Modern-day Lebanon, essentially, that area. Um, so, yeah, they come in different colors and ideas. I mean, for the most part, they would uh, agree on very similar ideas, and mostly the ideas are from Socrates, right? But put to the extreme, really. But let's. Uh, that's why um, I bring up Onesicritus, and not many people do, but I, I like that aspect of it. I like the adventure aspect. What do you think, Dio? Yeah, um, I feel like that's more. It's kind of yeah. It just seems a little bit more toned down, right? Exactly, because it seems like Diogenes was very extreme. But I do feel like the, the when we talked about this, we I know we're probably repeating ourselves by now. Like, oh, you guys are always talking about this, but yeah, I think it's very important to bring up the fact that Diogenes was very jaded because of this the stuff that happened. And a lot of other cynics, they, they seem to be a lot more watered down, which is not bad, I think. Yeah, he seemed more, like there was something there. He was on a, a bit of a a war path. Uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, almost more um, combative. He wanted to really get rid of this society. It's kind of like the Joker in a sense, right? Kind of the Joker of the... What at 390 BC? Um. Anyway, let's talk about Crates of Thebes, right? Because uh, the reason why Crates of Thebes is kind of important is because he's essentially at the same level as Antisthenes and Diogenes. Well, even though Antisthenes isn't really considered a a cynic, really, uh, he's more considered a precursor cynic or a proto cynic, right? Like he's kind of in between. Like he's kind of an honorary cynic, right? 
but regardless, people, at least the people, the Alexandrian writers of successions, these Stoics, and by the way, they were the Stoics, right, in Egypt. They wrote about um, crates being on their level, right? And I do agree with that because all the other cynics, I mean, they're not as influential as Diog- uh, as crates, really. All the other peoples of, Di- of Diogenes, in my opinion. And I say that just because uh, Kreis, he, I mean, he taught um, the founder of Stoicism, which is the most popular, If even now, it's very popular, Stoicism. But I guess because it's so universal, right? So obviously a lot of people can agree with it, right? Whereas cynicism is not, it is pretty universal in some senses, but in other senses it's not. It's kind of a personality thing because, you know, having being satirical, being frank, and, and putting a value on freedom of speech and defying conventions is not something most people would kind of be comfortable with. You know what I mean? Whereas stoicism is it's a little watered-down version of cynicism, and not in a bad way, at least. But in the beginning, it was a lot more like cynicism. But that's why I think it's important to talk about um, crates, in my opinion, for that reason, really. Because, yeah, everybody has either heard of stoicism or at least like the the attitude of being stoic which comes from in a sense the philosophy kind of like cynicism but um it's not this this is i'm not gonna make this a deep dive it's more like how do we describe it how he fits into this bigger picture that's what i'm trying to do with this maybe eventually we can do something on youtube and and condense it in a sense but yeah because that's the, the whole story right and we're almost there. That's why I, I, I um, let's for I make an exception and kind of do a little bit of a biography, a sort of a mini biography of uh, Crates, Crates. So he was born in three sixty five B C, and was supposed to inherit a large fortune from his father, Ascondis. And according to DL, he gave it away after seeing a beggar on the street. So uh, there's different accounts of this story of how he gave his uh, wealth away, right? I don't really think it matters, right? Who did he give it to? So there is a story. Um, I don't know who said it. I had to look. Um, some I think it was Diogenes of Laertius who, who stated this, but it might have been a different person. might have been a different historian. But apparently there's a story that either creates threw it into the ocean, right? After meeting Diogenes or before. I think it was after that. Um, I'm going based on more D.R. Dudley, right? Where he says it's most likely after he met Diogenes. He probably did that. Not before. He threw it into the ocean and then he sold his lands. There's another story where he gave it to his sons. Oh, no, he gave it to a banker. And if his sons become philosophers, give it... Give it to them, and if they don't, just give it to the public. <laughs> so I don't, I don't agree with that one. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that he, yeah, maybe he was extreme and he, he threw it away. But there's also there's another story that's also realist, probably more realistic. Um, he gave it to the people because I heard that he might have been more philanthropic, and that's why he's so popular compared to Diogenes, because Diogenes didn't have money to give away, right? Because he was exiled. But Crates had the money. He was born into a wealthy family. 
and he gave it. So that's why maybe he's seen more positively, right? Because he's a philanthropist. I, I'm more in line with the that. I mean, in terms of just my reasoning, that Crates probably gave his his money away and he didn't throw in the ocean. I think that's probably so extreme. But maybe he did. He probably gave it to the people. And they used, by the way, in Siena, there's a cathedral in Italy. And it depicts that story of Crates by throwing his money into the sea. Does that answer your question? I was kind of, yeah. I was kind of being sporadic. But yeah, it, I'm... I'm more in line with that. Yeah, he probably gave it away. Maybe he threw some. I don't know. He he was really rich. He must have had to... He's probably so rich he had to throw some in the water. And he's just like, yeah, I might as well give it away. <laughs> Got tired of it. Right? He's like probably tired of throwing the money in the, the water. He's like, yeah, you know what? I'll just give it away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you do with like pallets of gold. And <laughs> yeah. Right? It's not, yeah. It's, I not, mean, it's not something yeah. you get rid of just by yourself. Like me. And he had a lot of it. So, yeah, and if he had met Diogenes, Diogenes probably would have told him to give it to people and said, you don't need it, but maybe other people might need it. No, he probably wouldn't have said that, in my opinion, because Diogenes would probably be like, no, no one needs money. You just leave it, live on the ground. Yeah, I would think maybe just kind of abandon it almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why I'm so conflicted on this. But it doesn't matter his... Because it also, um, yeah, it says, yeah, Diogenes convinced him to give up his farm. Yeah, this is, by the way, a quote by DL. Diogenes convinced Crates to give up his farms to sheep pastures and throw his money into the sea. That's according to Diogenes Lyrius. So, it doesn't matter. His money, he gave it away. It's, it's gone. He, he became a cynic and the money is gone. Whether he gave it away, I'm thinking he gave it away. That's what happened. I don't want to make this another coin argument. But yeah, <laughs> he seems more reasonable, so I yeah. assume he would give it away. But anyway, he's also really famous. This is where the chronology, by the way, kind of gets messed up. I'm just going to have to skip because there's kind of different accounts in his life. There's not really like a chronology of his life. He just kind of like Diogenes. You know what I mean? It's not like a biography where it's like beginning, middle, end. I'm just going to have to jump around to the events he's known for. Mm-hmm. So he's very. The next thing he's really known for that's makes him, uh, I guess, not a cult figure. I would say more like a, um, I guess a, I guess kind of a cult personality because he eventually they, like Diogenes, they kind of make him a saint in a sense, and they draw him on paint, draw them in paintings and walls. I think more than Diogenes, by the way. I wish we could do this on video so people could see the artwork because they have a bunch of crates. I think more than yeah, more than Diogenes or uh, equal. But yeah, he married a, a, a no, not a noble woman. He named it was um, she was just very rich, right? Her name was Hipparchia or Hipparchia. I don't know. Different people pronounce it differently. And then yeah, she became a cynic too. By the way, so she gave. Away, I'm assuming she gave it away or she threw it away. She, the money's gone. And it was considered, yeah, a huge deal because it was a marriage of mutual respect because she, apparently she fell in love with him because of his teachings and she probably saw him, I don't know, as kind or something. She must have really liked him. Either that or he was just 
a stud, just buff. She saw the dangle underneath that cloak. He just, yeah, the cloak. Who knows what she was thinking? Saw the imprint. She just really wanted crates. And yeah, she married him, and it's very famous. And yeah, it was it was a marriage based on mutual respect and equality. Yeah, yeah. All these people will love that, right? Very, very, very progressive in that time. So, also, it's another big deal because, uh, you know, marriages were based on status and economics for the most part. It's not really about love or romance. I mean, there's definitely some, but even in other countries now. They don't really marry people for love. That's kind of more sentimental and romantic. Most people would do it because... No, I don't want to say most. I don't want to put all these women underneath the bus, right? It's, But at least in some cultures, they regard it more as... At least in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, no, Kyrgyzstan? I know they they rob brides. Yeah, remember the, the wife robbing that they do in Kyrgyzstan? Do you know about that? I don't believe so. Yeah, so what they do is <laughs> they um if the guy wants a wife and this is very traditional, not not many people do it. The very, very small communities in these um rural places places do it. You know, it's because it's like a Mongol tradition or something. So they go to the whatever girl they like and they just they put her in her bag and steal her. And then the fam and their family has to convince her to marry the guy, and, and he's such a great guy. And and they and they yeah Still and, today, yeah. There's a documentary on it in 2015 about it. It's very. It's probably very very rare. So I mean, yeah, we could. <laughs> that'd be funny if we reviewed that. Eventually, gotta, gotta appreciate other cultures, right? Yeah, we gotta appreciate that. I don't keep their norms of <laughs> robbing women and throwing them in bags. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so yeah, but they I mean, do. So can, they do. So, look at India, country of over a billion people. They still do arranged marriages. Yeah, right. And something, and they do it sometimes for uh, almost like a an economic reason, right? Yeah, they do, there has to be. They, yeah, some like equal mm-hmm. value of exchange between the wife's family and the husband's family. Yeah, right. Exactly. And sometimes they're, yeah. So it's a big deal, but that's pretty much what I'm trying to emphasize. That yeah. And I mean, in China. Oh yeah, in, chi- the, in China too. I remember. Like the families will. Oh, and I remember like, there was like a. It's gr- like the wife's family has to buy a car. The husband's family has to buy the house. And it's, like that. And it's fu- funny you say that because now that we're talking about China, even though we're talking about ancient Greece as well, <laughs> um, but I ma- no, but it makes sense because it kind of relates to it because I, I'm just remembering this because I remember um, a Chinese girl. She was marrying a guy because really, I mean she. I'm not saying all Chinese women are like this, but she told me specifically, yeah, I mean, most guys, this is a girl I dated, by the way. She's like, yeah, we mostly were told, at least, it's a societal norm to want to date a rich man. Date oh, a rich yeah, dude. that's everywhere there. Right? You don't, yeah, of course not 100%. Yeah, of course. It's a high number. <laughs> it is a high number. Okay, we'll, have, I'll, have, leave <laughs> I'll leave it to you. I'll leave it to you. Well, we're not going to get into that because it, then it's not going to be a philosophy. It's going to be. Yeah, I, I just wanted to give some an- anecdotal. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I want to I don't want to go on a tirade, random tirade. But anyway, um, 
Sources say that she Hipparchia, she uh she practiced the cynic shamelessness and she used to have sex in public with um Crates. And, and and it's, this is according to Sexist Empiricus. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds and it, this is the funniest because his name sounds like empiro, empirical sex, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's very empirical. Sexist. <laughs> I can imagine uh Dude, well, you know what? This is not an average philosophy show. I'm just gonna. I can imagine this happening. Where this hypocrisy? She's like, "What are you staring at?" Right? And he's like, "My name is what, <laughs> Sextus Empiricus." Sextus Empiricus. And the irony of this is yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sextus Empiricus. Uh, I'm here to document this right now. Dude probably had a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, they had two kids. And. It just conceived them in front of the public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a baby boy and a baby girl. And apparently the baby boy, he used to take... Yeah, he, he used to take him to brothels. His baby boy? No, I don't know how... No, when he was younger, I don't know how young... I don't know. Hey, I don't hey, have too much info on that. Boy, watch me. Boy. <laughs> watch me in action. <laughs> Get in on this. By the way, he had a greater impact. In, okay, let's move on. Uh, he had a, a greater impact than Diogenes in literature. I mean, Diogenes was said to have written things according to some secondary sources. Some of them say he didn't at all. It depends. You know, he, he wrote comedies and parodies and satire. You know, that's a cynic genre, right? They tend to write those things. It's something, it's the specialty that they have. And it's very important to literature, actually. So... Crates was referenced in comedies written by philosophers Meander and Philemon. So that's a big deal. He was referenced by other philosophers. He was respected. He was adored. He was loved. And he was immortalized in history. So yeah, people had written about him. They had given, I guess, pretty much given him a shout out and put him in his book. All right, I'm going to shout you out, Crates. I'm going to put you in my book. And his ideas were paraphrased by many other notable, uh, notable philosophers like Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Emperor Julian, last pagan emperor of um, Rome, and a lot of other notable figures. But yeah, there's this one um, book he also about Cynic ideology and practices. It's called the Cynic uh, Epistles. And yeah, it talks about ethics. And it, and. A little bit on religion, funny enough, and it's their purpose is not to seek the divine, but rather to seek ethically pu- ethically pure life by breaking away from social norms and conventions via aesthetic practices. And the epistles are not especially original, but probably serve as a means to propagate, you know, the cynic philosophy. The and but this, yeah, pretty much this is the book we talked about a few episodes ago. It's very. It's the book that shows the actual teachings of Diogenes. So if you want to learn about it, you should read this book. But it's it doesn't exist anymore. It's the book is is gone. It's burnt. It was probably held in Alexandria. Is it burnt down? J.K. I don't know what happened. Yeah, don't 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 um quote me on that. Only quote me on the stuff we put in the description. You can actually search that up and. That'll you, yeah you can sort cite that actually so if you watch you want to cite something yeah cite the stuff we put in the description because that's actual books and uh, journals and people who yeah you can look it up for yourself if you for philosophy class but um yeah most of the stuff we know about this book is secondary knowledge like always 
So we know that he wrote the book and that these are the cynic practices. And yeah, it was pretty much on what they did. The um, wisdom that's acquired and demonstrated mixed in with, you know, polemacy and different anecdotes contained in epistles are probably used by the street the street preachers. That's what they were street preachers, most of them cynics. Um yeah, and a lot of this stuff really influenced um cynicism in the in the in the Roman times and also Stoicism. But yeah, um he's important in a lot of aspects because one he influenced cynic literature, satire, comedy, parodies and he was also the teacher. And by the way, he also had a bunch of students too. So not only did Diogenes have a bunch of students, like Onesicritus and and Crates and all all these other people that I think we should talk about in a different episode. But Crates had a bunch as well. I think he had like yeah, Diogenes Laertius quoted from what he said half a dozen students. But they were very influential, all of them. At least all of them had an impact in some way. Because Manippus is known for his Manipian satire, right? And Zeno is obviously the Stoic. The first Stoic. And then the other... I mean, those are the main three I'm going to talk about right now. The other Stoic would be the, the head of the Academy of Stoa, which is Cleanthes. He liked Diogenes and had many students. So eventually, I think we could do a more deep dive into his teachings. Because I think... They're a bit scattered around all these episodes. Did did they teach like math and stuff? <laughs> no, they were against it. No, they weren't against it, but they. Um, Dr. Dudley talks about um, uh, Diogenes. They did. They didn't like metaphysics, and they yeah, they didn't care much for music and geometry and all these other subjects. What if they liked it though, and they wanted to learn? There is a story I heard from Crates of Thebes that apparently he and then we can talk about that in the next episode because next episode we we should talk about um pretty much uh, Zeno make it make it only for Zeno Zeno because I think I think Stoicism is starting to be more in, it's very interesting to me now I used to think cynicism was more interesting but that's a, the huge biggest difference between cynicism and Stoicism cynicism doesn't it teaches you about ethics, but it, it does not put an emphasis on one on on learning other other um, subjects like physics or metaphysics or um, math or music. Whereas Stoicism is okay with that, and they they want you to learn it because in Stoicism there's something called the egg. So to be a good Stoic, you need to learn physics, you need to learn logic, and you need to learn ethics. It's like the egg, the yolk, and the outer part of the, the the shell of the egg right so um yeah i, I had to look too much more into it but I, I apparently yeah zeno when he was under the uh the wing of crates he wanted to go learn physics <laughs> i think he might have i think crates apparently he took him he took him out of the the classroom because he didn't want him to learn physics which I guess that is the incongruity of, of cynicism. The one bad aspect that it's a little bit more fixed in that aspect that 
we have we figured out everything. We know everything about ethics and how to live your life and what you should you what is pleasurable and what you should abstain from. You get what I mean? So it's fixed in that sense. And it's not really how do I say it? Maybe that's why it's not appealing to people. Because you can't really it's not eclectic. It's kind of more pure. It's considered the most purest Socratic um school of thought. So did they did they want to like stop scientific progression? <laughs> yeah, and in, in a sense, uh, it's weird. It's kind of like in the middle. Like they would learn enough of it, so yeah, they would learn it, but just to use it for arguments about logic. Do you know what I mean? But they wouldn't put an emphasis on learning it to apply deep, it. Yeah, to apply it or deeply or for research. Yeah, I know Diogenes. There's a very um, famous example of him. Um, he kind of included physics in an argument just so he could um, counter a different argument. Like he wasn't just, and and also not all cynics are atheists either. Most of them tend to be atheists, right? But they do use it when it comes in handy as a tool to to be logical and, and argue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like you, it's like those anti-vaxxers who learn about biology and vaccines so they can argue about why it's bad to be vaccinated. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like the flat earthers who they learn about astronomy or the stratosphere or the atmosphere or all these other physics just so they can argue against certain things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that that was the purpose of learning it. It wasn't. So it wasn't congenial. It wasn't. It didn't mix. I mean, you. C- but it sets like up for like taking away or it, preventing some practicality from developing. Yeah, that's the weird part about it. But they were okay if you push for being practical. You gotta let things develop to make your life more practical. Well, I don't think the the cynics they cared more about. Um, living more with nature, they I don't think they really cared about practicality. But I know, but it also doesn't. And that's the one thing about cynicism that kind of irks me as well. Is that I mean, their autonomy and their freedom is very specific. It's freedom to. But you wouldn't have like a wine barrel to sleep in, right? So that <laughs> basic. Basic use of like math and physics and whatnot. It's it's weird, isn't it? Right. It's kind of like the anti-vaxxers who they use science to kind of disprove the vaccines that they. I mean, they usually they're not they're okay with ten the shots and they tend to, right? At least some of the vac- anti-vaxxers I've seen on the internet they're like, okay, I'll get a anti-vax, I'll get a tetanus shot, but then they like, oh, the other vaccines are somehow not okay. You know what I mean? Or like well. Why? Because tetanus shot doesn't have uh, stem cells in it. Not sure, but I'm I'm just bringing it up because there's kind I, of a what is the anti? It's it's kind of oh, I know <laughs> anti. It up. No, no, but um, maybe it could be that. Usually, the argument I hear from um, anti-vaxxers is that vaccines have mercury, right? So mercury co- is there was a study posted um, by some that was disproved later, ob- obviously. That it contains mercury, 
right? Mm-hmm. And mercury poisons people. Obviously, there there's many cases of there's mercury in fish. Mm-hmm, mercury in fish. And a and, lot of fish. It's right? like impossible to. <laughs> yeah. At this <laughs> point, at this point, yeah, you you're gonna have mercury regardless, right? And, and there's this idea uh, that fillings. Yeah, and there's. Yeah, the anti-vaxxers, they tend to use that study and say that because there was a study showing that vaccines have, that the mercury in vaccines are, um, they have a link to causing autism in children and retardation. I think it was retardation. Autism and retardation or either one or that therefore you shouldn't have your, your kids vaccinated. I heard something along the lines of the stem cells. Because you, like, if you take a vaccine, it's got a lot of them have stem cells in them. And the stem cells could be from a male. It could be both. Or a female. I don't know too much about the anti-vaccine movement. All I know is very like surface level stuff that they are against vaccines. And they're against... And the, a lot of it had to do at least... With that study published, I think it, I think it started with with mercury. I yeah. do. I remember hearing about that now, but I think the thing now more so is the stem cells. If it's got like female stem cells, and then a male takes it, that it affects them. <laughs> you're gonna a, become a soy boy. If it's a male, you're gonna get bitch well, tits. You're. <laughs> I don't. I don't know the science behind it, but but that's what they think, right? You're gonna get. But like, I mean, you use stem cells. You're pretty much inviting the DNA into yourself to. To heal, you stem cell recovery. Oh no, no! Oh, I thought you were talking about whether or not they're that they're afraid of becoming women because of this stem cell that came from a female. I think, or something I think they like do that. think, yeah, it, it affects you if you're a male and you get a bunch of female stem cells pumped into you. That it'll affect. Yeah, you. they're uh, they're afraid of the estrogen or something. Uh, that it will cause some sort of like biological biological confusion. <laughs> it's funny how we started talking about stem cells. <laughs> no, but but I know, but it, it makes sense because, yeah, they use, that's funny how you asked that math. But they, it's weird because they were anti-intellectual in a sense. At least Diogenes himself, I think he said this, according to uh, DL. He said that, um, don't quote me on that. I'd have to look that up again because I had to read, um, reread that, uh, the overview of philosophers. Not overview, but that book by DL. Um, he said uh, something along the lines of that excessive academics. He was against excessive academics over, and maybe he may have been taken out of context. Maybe he was never against. Uh, maybe again, my opinion. Maybe I interpreted that way. Maybe there was. Maybe he was just against overthinking things. And he wanted things to be more simplistic. But most likely, I think he was anti-intellect, intellectual or acad- academia because he, cynicisms, they pride, they pride themselves on, no, on thinking that they know already what people should be doing, right? Which is living in accordance with nature, living like a dog, acting like a dog in a sense, like we said in the other episode. So therefore, you don't need to know anything else. You know what I mean? You, we figured out everything, you know, that you should do in life. That's my opinion. That's how I interpreted that. That's the 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 feelings of different philosophers, which is interesting because cynics ended up indirectly, I guess, subconsciously developing a lot of philosoph- philosophical concepts later, like Friedrich Nietzsche 
specifically, he really liked Diogenes. Um, another one is the sat- satire, parodies, comedy, and they had also they yeah. So there was, and they still affected the course of in, in academia, which is funny, even though they were kind of against it. In in comedy, where it's like making fun of them. Well, the diatribe comes from cynicism, right? The rant. It is like the earliest form of like, I mean, they had a structure to it, the cynics, the, the diatribe, the rant. And yeah, the com- comedy meaning more, yeah. I mean, apparently Crates of Thebes was into comedy. He was kind of, I don't know, like stand-up comedy, but more like, that aspect I don't know too much. I know more from the literary genres, like specifically satire. Well, had like stand-up shows while banging his wife in public. <laughs> I would not be surprised. Um, let's go. Let's move on because we talked about <laughs> stem cells. But anyway, um, Crazy Thebes died around 290 BC, and he was buried in uh, Boetia. I think it's important. That's yeah. That's the end of his life. Pretty much, he died in 290 BC. Uh, from again, quoting D.R. Dudley, 1937. Um, he didn't, th- he couldn't live to 130. I think he lived pretty. He lived to a pretty ripe age because he was born in three. He born three. He was born in 365 BC, and died in 290 BC. That's not, that's pretty decent. It's better than nothing. <laughs> better than better than I mean, despite like yeah, but I heard he was older though. I heard, I hear different um, accounts. I hear that he's ninety, so it depends. But maybe he just being I guess conservative with that number, just because maybe could have um, could have gotten sick or his lifespan was lowered from all that, all that screwy pooping. With um hepatia, are we visiting all those a blood vessels? A blood vessel just popped. Caught some. Yeah, right. Proto AIDS. Proto, yeah, proto AIDS. Each fam- Oh yeah. All right, I almost lost my place. <laughs> I think it's almost important. I think it's important to note that in cyn- in the cynic mythos, each famous cynic, such proto cynic. And they put a, an emphasis. Yeah, we talked about that. They all, I guess I'll say it again, just because. Yeah, they all put a little spin on on, on how they interpret it, right? Antisthenes represented toughness, mental and physical. Diogenes represented self sufficiency, and then I think Crates epitomizes philanthropy, right? Because of what he did. Um, I got another quote too, by the way, because this is an important quotes on Crates. Um. How he was seen, by the way. So the quote is from Plutarch and Julian. Crates. This is by Apuleius, right? This is who I'm quoting. Crates, the founder, the follower of the. Di- oh, wait, um. Before I start, I'm I'm gonna pretty much um par- read this because. Essentially, he was kind of the Diogenes that was liked. Like, if Diogenes was nicer and he was a little bit more tame, that would be Crates. And I think that's why he became so famous, because 
he was like the good guy version of cynicism. It's like good cynic versus bad cynic. Good cynic is crates. Bad cynic is Diogenes, where he's just going on diatribe, he's going on rants, he is disproving these little theories. Where and then crates is more. He does the same thing, but he's, I guess, more nicer about it, right? I mean, like okay, you can you I can just dis- I mean you can disprove an argument, but you don't have to be an asshole about it. That's what I'm saying, you know. Banging your wife in public is better than pooping in public. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's a funny. It's I like, love your interpretation. I'm going to do it, but like, I love you know, your, I'm not going to poop. But <laughs> I love your interpretation of that. He's like, "Yep, way better." But anyway, let's paraphrase this um, um, passage up from Apuleius. Crates, the father of Diogenes, whom the Athenians of his time revered as a household deity, Lar Familiares. No house was ever barred against him. However, private the rooms of of the head of the family, crates would enter it and the most the most opportunely, for he was the umpire and arbiter of all family disputes and quarrels. Poets speak of the hero Heracles, and how by his valor he overthrew wild animals, monsters, and giants, and rid the earth of them. Our philosopher was in truth a very Hercules in contending against anger, envy, greed, lust, and other plagues and evils of the human soul. Of such pests would he free men's minds. Um, by the way, it, it, makes, it makes it seem like kind of uh, he was kind of the, uh, he'd be the guy who you have a family, there's a family fight and he goes and he's the mediator. He just calms them down. Yeah, I can see why people like him. Um, yeah, and it's funny how they always kind of uh, put them, they uh, assimilate, associate themselves with Heracles, Hercules. Like, okay, obviously they're not fighters and destroying monsters, right? But they're fighting against their own inner demons, in a sense. They're bad, the bad um, aspects of humanity. I guess the carnal desires like lust, greed, envy. Right, you can say anything, everything about cynics that they're dirty, that they're mean, that they're like dogs. But at the end of the day, I guess compared to the the people who are, who, or I guess at the top, right, who have, they've backstabbed as many people, at least back in these times, they have backstabbed as many people as they could. They have killed the, the Machiavellian triangle of evil, right? Psychopathy. psychopathy and um, manipulativeness. Uh, that's not the actual triangle, by the way. I'm just, but the the worst aspects to gain power, essentially. So if I compare to that, then I guess sure, maybe I, I would rather be friends with a cynic than, at least at that time, those people who would do anything for the power, especially like the, whoever killed the Roman emperors. They would go. F- a lot of them were assassinated. And some sometimes they were betrayed by their own guards. So it's a pretty sad life to live. So I can see why maybe they kind of liked him in a, a, a way. And by the way, um, this is D.R. Dudley. His interpretation is very interesting. He said this. It is, it is a familiar comparison so dear to the cynics themselves in which Lucian uses of Diogenes like Heracles. I march and fight against lust. I am the deliverer of mankind and the healer of their woos. But the methods of Diogenes were harsh. Other dogs, he would say, bite their enemies. 
I bite my friends for their salvation. The nature of Kratos was much more genial, probably because he had not suffered injustice as had been a lot of Diogenes. He passed his whole life jesting and laughing as though on perpetual holiday, says Plutarch. His very reproofs were delivered not with bitterness, but with kind, kindliness, and a kindliness which would, which on one occasion pleasantly surprised Demetrius of Phalerum. So it seemed like he was, yeah, he would do what Diogenes does, right? Right, and we talked about the dog uh, philosophy in the last in the last episode. I mean, we kind of did. We it was kind of a wreck that last episode, but we're, whatever. Um, that he did everything that that Diogenes did. I mean, the dog like attributes at least, right? Like telling people when they're wrong or when they're being illogical or the wrong or when they're not following their nature or being autonomous. All these good things, and Crates kind of did the same thing, but he was um. A lot more, yeah, watered down about it. He kind of just, he told, he would give it to you straight and not be an asshole about it, essentially. So I think that's why people, obviously he was a philanthropist too. He gave money. So that's why I could see people liking him more a a lot. And this is, you have a lot of people saying that you have Plutarch, you have all the other cynics. He, he has pupils. You have also Emperor Julian in his sixth oration talked well about um, crates of Thebes. I mean, he's really, uh, compared to Diogenes, he's really um, a saint. He was, I mean, he did, yeah. I mean, the shameless, the worst thing he did, I guess he was a little bit shameless. He used to screw his wife and take his kids to brothels. <laughs> but I think it's like, he still was a philanthropist. He was kind. He cared about people. He was an optimist. He was very joyous, the way to describe him. I mean, he chose that life, so obviously he must have been happy. If you choose that, then you're going to be that way. Surprised he only had two kids. Right? Maybe he just said, that two is enough. Living simply. And then, by the way, yeah, yeah. I think this was... um. Seven, yeah. Yeah, that was Plut- Plutarch on the tranquility of the mind. He says that uh, of um, of um, crates. He said, I quote, but crates with only his wallet and a tattered cloak laughed out of his life jo- jocelessly. Is that how you say it? Jocelessly. Jocosely. Maybe. As if he had been always at a festival. Yeah, and also there's another quote, by the way, of crates. I'm going to look that up as well. I'm surprised I didn't have it here. Prepared. Crates. If you look up crates, all you see is like do- uh, dog crates. Crate and barrel. There you go. But doesn't he seem like the nice Diogenes, kind of? And yeah, if you look up uh, um, Crates of Thieves, you'll find a little mural of him. And you'll find him in a... You'll find a picture... Uh, one of his paintings with Hipparchia. It's in a Roman wall. You see medieval paintings. You'll see him in a stained 
and uh, a floral mosaic. I mean, there's a lot. It seems like he's very deified. Not deified, but more like he's definitely seen as something more. Inter- I mean, more like a good Diogenes, really. And this is, by the way, by um, Emperor Julian. He is said to have been deformed with a leg and a hu- and hunched shoulders. He was nicknamed the door opener because he would enter any house and people would receive him gladly and with honor. He used to, I think we we already kind of talked about this, that so he used to go to people's houses and stuff. But I'm going to emphasize just because it seems like people liked him and they're going to have him go to their houses, right? He used to enter the houses of his friends without being invited or otherwise called in order to reconcile members of a family, even if it was an apparent if it was apparent that they were deeply at odds. He would not reprove them harshly, but in a soothing way, in a manner which non-accusatory towards those whom he was correcting, because he wished to be of service to them as well as to those he was just those who were just listening. So yeah, it seems like com- Diogenes, he's more, uh, yeah, really a troll and a satirist and, and trying to prove you wrong, which he was good at. Whereas Craze was just like, seemed like a mediator almost, not really a debater, more of a mediator. And he, so there's kind of like, yeah, when you debate either you're kind of the mediator where you can troll people, have them calm, you know, calm them down, you mediate them, or where, or you're more of a debating, you're kind of like an aggressive debater, and I felt like Diogenes was more of that stereotypical debater who was very aggressive and doesn't want to learn. He'd rather just criticize. Get what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that's why maybe people invited him to his house. And it's funny because um, Diogenes, he said he. I think he was self-aware though. He, I think he. There's a quote by I think. By Diogenes himself, actually. Let me look that up. Where he said, again, he also referred to himself as kind of a dog, too, by the way. He he said, Diogenes referred to himself as a dog, whom all admired, but few would dare to hunt with him. That's me- Right? That's how he would say it. Like, kind of, I feel like he was a bit, he probably knew that himself, that he was a bit, and I think this quote is actually directly from him. That DL said that he said this about himself. I don't know how. Yeah, DL, he's everywhere. If uh, in terms of the history of philosophy, you can never escape him. Mm. Yeah, and he uh, he probably was quoted by one of his pupils. That's probably how they got this quote from one of his pupils. That yeah, he probably knew that because of the way he acted, he couldn't really attract people but he but in a in a good way he attracted the right people who had tough skin you know what i mean but maybe that his goal was to get more followers so they could learn his teachings that's what i think i thought and um i feel the other um uh, crates his approach was more of yeah i want to get people who are on our side and i do want to distinguish the people who are are friends and enemies but at the same time it's like maybe if you're a bit nicer about it it might work right that's that's my opinion really oh yeah and the Foshin of the honest and stilpo of megara they um they liked also uh creative thebes 
Oh, yeah, half a dozen, yeah, and Dodgy Lepnertius named a half a dozen people who would follow him. So he... I'm dodging. He had another student, um, Hegesias of Sinope, another guy named Dog Collar. But yeah, I feel like Dior Dudley talks about this, by the way, and Dodgeness and Lurius, that they kind of see themselves as the watchdogs, right? The guard dogs, meaning they guard their own philosophy, but they also protect people and they do good for humanity, right? That's how they see themselves as, right? That's arguable, right? At least Creates of Thieves, he definitely gave people, I mean, gave, 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 he really distributed his wealth. He gave people money, so. But uh, D.R. Dudley says that, in a sense, he, he, it seems like he's more in favor of Creates of Thieves being kind of the epitome of being a, it's kind of that watchdog, where you're still protecting your ideas and you have self-advocacy and you are defending them. But at the same at the same time, you're still kind of being, like he said, um, Creates of Thieves says, I bite my, f- I bite them to save them, not to hurt them. Whereas Diogenes bites them and barks at them to kind of be an asshole and troll them. And Creates does it out of optimism. He wants to help them and change them and make them cynics, I guess. That's his way of doing it. It's kind of like Christian's. Like, whether or not you agree with them, it's, like, kind of their way of, like, I guess you should be kind I'm not really religious, but it's their attempt at, in their sense, like, kind of, I'm kind of tripping on my own sentences, but I'm trying to find a way to to explain it, like, kind of like when a, a Christian person says, oh, my thoughts and prayers, right? Like there's some people who are kind of like, ah, you those fucking idiots. What is the thought and prayer going to do, right? That would be kind of the Dodgeness way of, like, seeing it, right? Kind of the brutal, realistic thing, right? Way of perceiving it. And then Crates of Thieves is more, well, I understand. I don't really necessarily believe in that, but I get where you're coming from. Does, does that make sense? Where the mm-hmm. he's kind of that way... I would say he's that's his approach to doing something um um creates of thieves and yeah especially him bringing up the part where he's like yeah I bite my dogs I I don't I don't bite my dogs I bite them so to save them you know it's just kind of there's some, I remember there's kind of a Christian who Christian person I met. I don't really believe in that. I'm not really religious. I guess I'm kind of agnostic. And then somebody came up to me in Florida, and they're like, I'm doing it to save you. So even if you don't believe in cynicism, and that's the way of saving somebody, living that lifestyle, but it's their way of like showing that they do want to help you, even if it's in their own way that you may not agree with. Do you get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like the yeah. intent is there. The intent. The intent yeah, is there. That makes sense. Yeah, that's how I see it. But anyway, um, I feel like we could have talked more about crates in depth. But I, like I said, this is kind of the role of crates in this whole mythos of the the kind of the the original founding fathers of cynicism. Really, that was kind of what I'm going for. So I'm trying to relate him to Zeno, uh, Zeno, the the cynic, because I, I believe originally he was a cynic. Then he became a Stoic, so 
that's next episode. And yeah, I'm going to call it Before Marcus Aurelius. I'm going to put in the title because really, if it wasn't for these people, Stoicism wouldn't exist. And Marcus Aurelius, who knows, maybe he would have been a terrible leader if it, was, if it wasn't for this philosophy. Because I, I think he was, I don't want to rewrite Roman history, but apparently he was maybe picked for that reason because of his Stoic beliefs and he was more, I guess I would say more, kind and chill who knows how history would have changed if he didn't have that philosophy had that um way of seeing life and administering people i think cynicism as a whole i mean it's a plot how you apply it personally depends so much on i guess your background and experiences yeah because i mean they all pushing the same ideas and thoughts, but kind of maybe it's their personalities and things where it kind of translated differently Mm -hmm. and how they expressed it. And even now I kind of agree. Like there's kind of a post discussion. I want to, I'm going to end this soon, but I want to get a little bit of post discussion because I'm thinking about this now. It's like, yeah, some of this stuff, like it still can be applied now. Because you got to be smart about it, right? I guess it really depends. Like, if you're a more combative person who's aggressive, you probably, and you listen, and you kind of pick up on cynicism and you're jaded, then you might be a lot more combative and you might be take that approach that Dajanis took. Mm-hmm. And if you're more chill, maybe you're more of a happy person. You're going to be like crates and just, uh, maybe still be a little satirical and comedic, but maybe like, even Diogenes apparently he had good intent, but I think his... I think that the fact that he was jaded from exile, and this is just my opinion, this is how I interpret it. But which, yeah, is interesting. And that, but that, the, part, that part for me is interesting because you got Alexander the Great saying, "If I was an Alexander the Great, I would want to be Diogenes." But he was a bitter person, <laughs> a very bitter person. Well, I think, and I think he only says it in that way just because it's like, well, in a sense, he's. I guess he's kind of lives simply and he's free. He's like, but I would think he would be intelligent enough to see through that. Okay, there's something else there, though. That he the, is a bit jaded. The idea but is I think, there. I can agree with all of that. But oh, like he didn't. You can. You would be able to tell if someone's like that. Okay, something happened to this. So you you're jaded for a reason. That, that's how when I see people like that, it's like okay, you went through something. Or you're going through something. Well. I can't say what what he was thinking. I don't know why he would say that. I don't even know if Alexander the Great did say that. It's just that some people think that. If he did say that, though, if Alexander the Great did say that, my only, maybe he was not emotionally intelligent enough to, to assume that. <laughs> Who knows? I know he, he's smart enough. He wasn't, he wasn't very intelligent. So I do agree with you that he probably, I'm surprised what he, I guess maybe um, this is what I'm thinking that. Trying to put myself in his shoes, Alexander the Great. From epi- it's funny because that's from episode five, right? Mm-hmm. But so, I, but you I'm can pl- respect someone, but not want to be them for. I guess that's his way of showing his respect of you know giving a hyperbolic statement like, "Huh, if I was, if I wasn't this, uh, maybe I would I wouldn't mind being you." Kind of that. Who knows if that was the case where he said that, or maybe he was impressed that he is very strong and tough despite him not having all the stuff it's just maybe he was in the line of like there's that quote 
And I, and funny enough, I didn't talk about that quote in the episode five, which I should have. The quote was, um, a man is measured not about how much he has, but what, how much, how much, what kind of person he is. Ah, I forgot the quote. The, uh, uh, give a man kind of like the quote was, you can tell a lot of, about a man with power and without power. Right? Mm. And you can tell a lot about a man. Oh, yeah, yeah. When with money and without money. How they, yeah, I, I know. I, I forgot that quote. Maybe this. It was a good quote, but it's pretty much saying like, like, would you still be the same without that? With that, would Alexander the Great still be the same if he didn't have that power, that status, that um, wealth that he was born into? Yeah. Is it his personality or is it his up- upbringing? Is it nature or nurture? Because it's like, I guess it is impressive that somebody can have so much pride while being in that state. Because if I was in that state, I personally, me, I, I'd be kind of uh, depressed and ashamed of myself a bit right and like hmm, well maybe because of my upbringing right and my dad came from a different country and he did so much and he would probably be ashamed of me not to do the most i can with what what resources he had to fight for you get what i mean so it's like it's like you don't know who a man truly is unless you take away his money and you take away his power are you still going to be so prideful so sure of yourself so confident like, who are you without your... Uh, it's all about the internal goods, right? I think that's what it comes down to it. Like, are you really going to be that person? It's just like, uh, imagine, like, because some people are defined by certain aspects. Like, some people are defined by even how good they look, right? Like, what are you without that? Yeah. What are It's like, and that Socrates also, that's something that Socrates kind of, and that, yeah, that, that idea come, goes back to him, like, what is your soul? Like the essence of who you are. Like with because you know Socrates was ugly. And then they also put a, a big emphasis on beauty in ancient Greece. So that's probably something that why he had those ideas. Like, hmm, what are people without those things? Without being attractive, without being uh a wealth or power or status and those things or the external goods. What are you with your internal goods? Like when you're broken down into your at the the smallest atom of your being, like how would you act? What, what kind of person would you be, right? Because one can assume like, um, people with that when they're they're at the very core of their atom, like that's all taken away. They kind of like they wouldn't be so confident in themselves. They would, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What, right? Yeah. Like if you ever think about it like that, because I I was thinking also that um. You ever seen the, what is that movie? Seven, Seven Sins? Seven. It had Brad Pitt and um, uh, Morgan Freeman. I, I know the movie, but I've, I've never watched it. So it's pretty much, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie, I think. It's supposed to draw the, um, it's a philosophical movie, and it's about the carnal sins, right? And one example is, it's a murder, right? And he kills people who epitomize that sin, right? And he kills them in an ironic way, right? So, for example, the gluttony. He dies by eat overeating. And then um, pride. She dies by her own vanity. 
So the pride when they when uh, Pride's body is found in that movie, I know I'm spoiling it for you guys, but spoiler alert. And eventually, do you know that'd be good if we did movie reviews? I think that people would like that. But um, there's this one part, and it, and that's why I'm connecting it to Socrates because it reminds me of uh, of that the soul. Like um, apparently, so she's given two options. Either so, if she cuts her face off because she's very attractive and she's very she's a model, she's very vain and um, cocky because she's so attractive. So the killer, from what it seems, he gives her two options: either you, I let you live, but you cut your face off, right? Or the other option is you kill yourself, and she ends up killing herself because she. Doesn't want to live in a world without her her beauty. And Did that's her vanity. Cut her face off or just cut her face? I think she... Um, I forgot how she kills herself. But no, she ends up killing herself. I she, mean, but was it like you need to cut your face off or just cut your no, face? No, not not just cut your face so you look disfigured. So you oh. like, <laughs> not like, not like pretty rough to not cut like, your face not off. Not like cut it off. But I mean more like... <laughs> Just make yourself look unpleasant, like a bunch of scars and stuff, and then maybe I don't know, disfigure yourself. Like it'll be painful, but you'll still be alive, right? Um, and it shows that, yeah, she cares more about her her looks than her actual life to the point where she'll kill herself than rather than be ugly and live around. You get what I mean? She probably could have done it in an artistic way and then just like uh, her <laughs> modeling. But you know what? It's funny because this is like a 1997, right? That movie. So if she did this in 2020. There'd be some, maybe there'd be some appreciation. Yeah. You'll be like, hey, you girl, you still alive. You know, maybe she's just living, it's the time of, it's, um, it's, uh, it's the time period she lives in 1997. Uh-huh. Maybe it's more realistic because beauty standards were, I guess, more, I don't know, guess like, uh, I guess worse. But uh, it's, my my interpretation is that, yeah, she was, she cared more about the extra, I guess that's an external good in a sense. No, it's not an external good. It's not, but in a sense, it's like something that. It's not your soul, you know what I mean. It's not the essence. Is your essence just your face, or is it who? What kind of actions you take and who you are? You get what I mean? I know it sounds kind of preachy, but that's just like, I'm I'm linking it to the so- that's um, so- the Socrates idea. Right, and I, I forgot why we even brought this up. I was just I just went on a kind of a tangent, but it's like yeah, the external goods. But um, I think in the next episode, yeah. Oh, oh, now I remember why we brought this up because of that quote, and yeah, I, I that quote about who, what kind of um, you can measure a man not by how much money he is, but how much money he doesn't have. That was that that quote along that line of what he is without power, and what he is like with power. How mm-hmm. will he act? And then Alexander, yeah, I mean, I was now I kind of jog back into that yeah i'm curious that's why i think when he talks about maybe that's his why he saw diogenes if he said that as i know i'm repeating myself but i'm i just wanted to clarify maybe that's why he saw diogenes as something interesting like he's just like hmm like would i be able to be that that pride that prideful right just like it's just like that woman who like killed herself right in that movie right this the, the vanity the sin Right, it's like, hmm. It's like, 
who are you gonna still be that person even with all the, all of that gone? Are you still gonna be that that person in the core of who you are, or your persona, your mask, who you portray yourself as, who or your attractiveness? Right? Maybe that's what that's my interpretation. Why he would probably maybe think about that because maybe Aristotle probably taught him about Aristotle is obviously the student of of Plato. Then Plato was a student of Socrates, so maybe that kind of, kind of etched in his psyche a bit, right? It's like, who am I really without this stuff? Would I still be something without that? Do you what? Do you, what is your interpretation of maybe why he might might have said that? I think yeah, I think you've got the right idea. I'm just thinking more on that, but it, it makes sense. It sounds kind of wishy-washy now that I think about it. But I'm thinking about that. I was thinking, hmm, what, what, what kind of person would Alexander be without all of that? Like, I'm curious if he would be that confident. Because, you know, remember, um, we talked about the oracle, right? Zeno went to oracle. Um, Alexander went to an oracle. And um, um, Diogenes went to an oracle. And Socrates, went, everybody went to an oracle, apparently. I don't know if it's true. But if it is, it... Alexander the Great went was told he was the son of Zeus because he was born um, during a thunderstorm, right? And obviously he 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 thought he was um, a god in a sense, right? And when he went to Egypt, he went to go confirm and validate that to see if he was a god. And apparently, when he went to Siwa, Siwa the oracle, they mispronounced the Greek word for son and they called him God instead on accident. And he's like, "Oh wow, I am a god." Right, and that kind of satisfied his ego. Mm. So I bring that up just because it's like he's probably thinking about what would it have been like if I wasn't Alexander, 